Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what this text is about. That's what we want. We want your kingdom, your everlasting kingdom, the kingdom above all kingdoms, the kingdom of which Christ is king, to come to earth and fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And for all sin and those who commit it and and are slaves to it to be banished. And for the son of righteousness to reign. Thank you that when he comes, he will come with healing in his wings. And it will be for the healing of the nations. And so we pray the gospel will advance this morning. In this place, in churches all across this hemisphere and all around the world that the gospel might be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end can come and the kingdom can come in. So save your people, bless your heritage, bless your heritage, be their shepherd and carry them forever, we ask. And we ask that you would be with us and shepherd us through this word this morning, that your people here might be strengthened with the knowledge and confidence and courage and conviction that comes from the certainty of, of your future reign and your present reign over all things. We ask all this through King Jesus. Amen. Joe Holland, who is a pastor in Virginia, wrote an article a few months ago where he identifies four different types of joy. Four different types of joy. He asked the question in the article, how can you spot True joy from superficial joy. Well, to do that, you have to understand that there are actually different, there are actually different kinds of joy and that three of those kinds of joy are the, the counterfeit type and there is one true type. You might be wondering, what are those four types of joy? Well, I'm going to give you the first three as we lead into the sermon this morning. The first type of joy that Pastor Joe Holland identifies is fake joy. Fake joy. And he calls this the joy that people take in sin. It's the bait on the hook of temptation. He says, quote, it's only sinful, lustful desire parading as joy, causing momentary delight even as it poisons your soul. True joy cannot be found here. So fake joy is the joy that we derive from sin because it's not real joy at all. The second type of joy that he identifies as fickle joy. He says fickle joy is delight that's contingent upon circumstances. If life is going well, happiness abounds and God's nearness is assumed. But when life is in doldrums or depression or darkness, then fickle joy is nowhere to be found because it's dependent upon those circumstances for its very being. Circumstances can neither produce nor detract from true joy. So there's fake joy and there's fickle joy. A third type is fading joy. Fading joy is a type of joy that's rooted in God's common grace to everybody. It's the joys that come from talents and family and possessions and health and achievements and the beauty of a sunrise and even the lessons that we learn through difficult circumstances. But... While this is true joy, 
It's only present in all circumstances and it's experienced by all people. Nevertheless, it's fading. It's fading because this world and all the goodness that it has to offer are not all that there is. If you gain the world and you have not God, then you ultimately have nothing. So there's fake joy, fading joy, and fickle joy. And all those joys are characteristic of one of our characters this morning, namely King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So this morning, what I want us to do is divide up. This is a very long chapter. We will eventually read the whole thing, uh, we, not just the part that Joe read for us, but it's 46 verses, so we've got a lot of ground to cover, but it has one dominant theme, and that is that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, you'll remember last week, if you were here, we began, we began the six weeks through the first six chapters of Daniel. So we're just marching through this narrative of what God is doing in this time in the life of his people through his servant Daniel. And we saw last week that Israel was taken captive by Babylon and shuttled off into exile. And with it was Daniel and his three friends, some of the prime teens and prospects of Jerusalem. And the king brings them into his court to be trained according to the ways of Babylon. As a goal, with the goal to make them effectively Babylonians in their thinking and in their behavior. But Daniel is resolved, while he's resolved to be kind and compassionate and capitulate in many ways to the, to the, to the requests of the king, nevertheless, he's still resolved in his heart to remain, what we saw last week, conscious of God and committed to God. He's resolved to be consecrated and belong to God alone, so there's only so far he'll go. And he's resolved not to take up the king's dietary plan, rather to offer a different plan to prove that his trust and confidence was in God alone. So he resists Nebuchadnezzar, knowing it could cost him his life, but nevertheless he is very diplomatic and he offers a a, a, a kind of a, a medium solution by saying, okay, let's just do a test here for 10 days. Let's do my plan, let the other guys do the Babylonian diet plan, and we'll see if we don't turn out the better for it. So that's what happens, and Daniel gets promoted. Daniel gets strong on a diet of vegetables and water, and he is ten times better, according to Nebuchadnezzar, than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And so Daniel is vindicated, and God is vindicated. And so this week, we get a new scene. Daniel is working within the court of the unbelieving King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon as one of God's people, and Nebuchadnezzar has a nightmare. And it throws him for a loop. And so this week, we're going to see three different scenes, okay? Verses 1 through 13 is Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to his dream. Verses 14 to 30 are Daniel's reaction to the dream. And then verses 31 through 46 to the end of the chapter is our reaction to the dream. So we've got Nebuchadnezzar, we've got Daniel, and we've got our reaction to this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. So let's take them one at a time. First section, verses 1 through 13, Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to the dream. Let's read beginning at Daniel 2 verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. 
And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Well, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were brought to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. What were the things that were going on here in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Well, we don't know yet. We don't know. We're not told the content of his dream here. We're just told that, and clearly, that it rocked him to the very core of his being. Whatever he did, he saw whatever's going on here in this dream, we know at least that he's seen three things. First, he's seen a dream, what he saw in the dream. He saw what his experts were trying to do, namely buy time. And then he saw red. Those are the things he saw. He saw his dream. He saw what the experts were trying to do. And he saw red. The question is, though, why? Why is he responding this way? Well, let's see, first of all, how he responds. All right? I want to, I want to point out three ways that he's responding here, which are illuminating for us here. First of all, he's troubled. He's troubled by the content of his dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, at this time, is the most powerful king on earth. There is no one that holds a higher position than him. He's king among kings. But in his heart, he is nothing but a lost child in darkness. Isn't that an amazing contrast? The king of kings of that day, the most powerful king in the earth, gets rocked because he has a little nightmare. Running into his parents' room, saying, Mommy, Daddy, please protect me from this bad dream. Can I sleep on your floor? He has everything that anyone could ever dream of, literally. He has fame. He has power. 
He has wealth. He has influence. But he doesn't have peace. And though Nebuchadnezzar has everything that the world has to offer, because he has set his hope on what this world has to offer, he has no peace. He has not found it. So he's troubled. He's troubled. Number two, he's also insecure. He's very insecure. How does that show itself up again and again? Well, first of all, he looks outside of himself for help. He is trying to find it among his enchanters and magicians and sorcerers and all this. He's looking for some relief. So he's turning to the experts, right? That's what we do in our culture. When we're troubled, when we're insecure, let's find some experts to give us some relief. What will the experts tell us about the condition that we're in? What can science tell us about this? What can the academy tell us about this? What can the news media tell us about this? What can the government tell us about this? What can a book tell us about this? Just got to find some experts. But you know what? This story teaches us that even human wisdom has its limitations. Can't tell us everything. Might be able to give us a temporary salve, some temporary relief, but it can't ultimately quiet our souls and settle our consciences down. So he's troubled. He's insecure. He's also hostile. He's angry. He's frustrated. He's very furious, according to verse 12. By his own lack of inner peace and contentment. And he's also frustrated by his inability to control his own destiny. He is, he is frustrated by the fact that he's not as big of a king as he thinks he is. It's deeply disturbing to his insecurity and revealing of his insecurity and producing hostility in him and trouble in him when he realizes he's not in control as he thinks he is. His sovereignty is being questioned by his own dreams. And this is why he's lashing out. He's troubled, he's insecure, he's hostile. That's his reaction to his dream. We'll come back to that later and answer why. Why? So that's Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to his dream. Troubled, insecure, and hostile. What about Daniel's reaction to the dream? Let's pick the story up in verse 14 and see what Daniel, how he responds. Verse 14. Remember, he's now being asked to kill these experts because he works for the king as well now. So verse 14 is where we pick the story up. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Key words there. We'll come back to those. To Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the king. So he's getting an appointment with the king. It's like, okay. So he hears this story, what's going on. And now he says, okay. Let me get on the king's calendar, and I want to go talk to him. 
verse 17. Then Daniel went into his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, his companions, verse 18, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him to you. O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went into Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. What a vastly different response to a dream. Daniel's response and Nebuchadnezzar's response could not be polar, any more polar opposite than they are. What does Daniel see? We saw Nebuchadnezzar saw a dream. He saw that his experts weren't performing to what he was wanting from them, and he saw red. What does Daniel see? He sees an opportunity to see God at work and God glorified. And then he sees an opportunity to exercise faith and courage in that God. And then he sees an opportunity to trust God. That's what he sees. He sees, wow, this is an opportunity for God to show up. I think I'm going to step into this. Is it risky? Yep, you bet. But has God come through for me before? Yep, last chapter. So I think he can be trusted. I'm going to step forward. I'm going to Notice, he puts his neck on the line. He could, he could end up in that line of death just like those other sorcerers were if he goes in and isn't able to tell the content of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He hasn't gotten the content of the dream before he's agreed to go meet with him. That's what's amazing about this story. It's not like he says, well, hold on, let me go pray first. He says, no, get me on the calendar of Nebuchadnezzar, let me go pray. Because he's confident that God is going to give him the interpretation of this dream. Not just the interpretation, but the content of the dream. He is sticking his neck on the line, and if God doesn't come through, he's a dead man. But he's confident that God's going to come through. So he sees an opportunity here for Nebuchadnezzar again to be confronted by the reality of God's kingship. And so he says, this is why we were sent into exile, to glorify God. So let's exercise faith and courage. Let's trust God. Let's move into this difficult situation and let's see what God does. So notice how he responds. Contrary to being troubled like Nebuchadnezzar, he responds with great wisdom and patience. He doesn't get all bent out of shape. Notice verse 14. He says, he replied with prudence and discretion. Verse 15, why is the decree of the king so urgent? So he's just quieted his soul, saying, why? Okay, this can wait. We don't have to be, this not this urgent, okay? 
just give me some time, but we, we will give the king what he wants. But he's, Daniel, again, is calm. He has wisdom. He's prudent. He, he's reasoning again like he did in chapter 1. He's reasoning with the guards. He's saying, hey, there's a, let's do a win-win here. Okay? We don't have to necessarily... Just like in chapter 1 when, when, the, when the diet is put before him and he says, hey, can we just work out a deal? Can we do 10 days? Here he's doing the same thing. He's not trying to resist the king wholesale, but he's also exercising wisdom and prudence and discretion in the way he handles the matter. A second thing, second way he's responding is with prayer. We see that right at the beginning of verse 17. He goes to his house, he, house, he gathers, gathers his friends, and he tells them, verse 18, to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Why are they praying? Why don't they just figure it out on their own? Do you know why they're praying? Because they're not the ones that reveal mysteries. God is. You have to go to God to get what only God knows. And so they go to God. And they pray to God. They depend upon God. This is so different from Nebuchadnezzar, who's driven to insecurity by depending on experts. See, when you depend on God... You don't have to be insecure. Insecurity in our lives is an evidence of a misplaced object of faith. But because his faith is directly in God, he prays to God and depends upon God. And third, not only does he respond with wisdom and prayer, but he responds with praise to God. In verse 20 through 23, he he essentially sings a song of praise to God for the revelation of the mystery of the content of the dream of the king. But notice something important again here. When does he praise God? He prays God after he receives the content of the dream. You say, well, that makes sense. I mean, he prays in response to what God has done for him. But notice, he hasn't gone to the king yet. Again, he's praising God in the midst of uncertainty. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He hasn't got it all figured out yet, but he's received the content of the dream from God, and now he's going to go talk to the king. But who's to say the king's going to like the content of the dream? Daniel knows what the content of the dream is, and it's not necessarily affirming of King Nebuchadnezzar and his future kingship. And the the, the, the likelihood that he will be promoted forever and ever into king of the universe. That's not the content of the dream. We read some of the content of the dream. The content of the dream is largely negative toward Babylon's future. So he's got to go stand before the king, give him bad news. And this is a king who's very furious. He's hostile. He's insecure. He's troubled. What do you think is going to happen? Anything good going to come out of that? Probably not. But he does it anyway. Because his confidence is in God. Wisdom, prayer, praise, contrasting to troubled, insecure and hostile Nebuchadnezzar. So we come to our final point now and ask the question, why? Why the, two, why the difference? Why, we've hinted at it along the way here. But what's the key here? What is, what's, the, what's the difference? And I, I want to sum it up in a word or in a sentence. Okay, Here's the sentence that I would give to sum up the difference between these things. When we are trusting in ourselves and our own kingdom... Life brings a lot of trouble, insecurity, and hostility. But when we're trusting in God and his kingdom, 
life brings a lot of peace and wisdom and prayer and praise. It's all in whose kingdom you're looking to establish. And make no mistake, by nature, we are all born little Nebuchadnezzars who want our kingdom to come and our will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't cross me. Don't make me do anything I don't want to do. I am my own. I am the captain of my fate or the captain of my soul, the master of my fate. I am me. We are that way. We all come into the world wanting our kingdom to come. We want to be little kings and little queens over the earth. You know why we want to be that way? Because God made us to be that way. You say, what? God made me to be a little king? and a little... Yeah, absolutely. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were created, they were the king and queen of the world. Under God. Under God. That's the key point. But nevertheless, they were made to rule and reign with God. And in their rebellion, they sinned against God. They didn't want God to be king over them. They wanted to be king. And that plunged the earth into sin and death. And so all the way up till January, or sorry, June 11th, 2017, we continue that legacy of trying to rule the world our way. But there's a hope that came into the world, and his name is Jesus Christ, the true image of God who was born 2,000 years ago, the son of the eternal God, to change this whole thing around and to recover God's original creation mission and to bring it to completion. Jesus comes into the world. He lives a perfect life in obedience to God. He dies a death on the cross that, to pay for the sins of all those who will ever repent and turn to him and trust in faith. And then one day soon after he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven where he presently reigns and rules over all things as king of the universe, he will establish that kingdom here on the earth in fullness when he returns again. That's the, that's the message of the Bible. That's the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that when we realize that we, I mean, is anyone here this morning troubled, insecure, hostile, upset at life? having problems, difficulty, because you're trying to do it your way, there's a better way to live. There's a better way to live. It is to transfer, to get, to, to allow yourself to be ripped off the throne of the universe and place yourself at the feet of Jesus, the true king. It's taking your crown off and putting it at his feet and saying, from henceforth, you call the shots. I belong to you. You're the Lord. That's what it means to become a Christian. It's not walking in aisles, not praying a prayer, it's not getting baptized, not joining the church, not growing up Southern Baptist or Catholic or anything like that. It's acknowledging that you in and of yourself are walking around the earth like a little king or queen in God's world. And you have realized the mess that your life has become as a result of that and the debt that you have incurred before God as a result of living that way. And you realize I'm under God's judgment. I'm living in rebellion to him. Is there any hope for me? There is hope for you. By turning from your sin and placing your trust completely in Jesus, you can be reconciled to God, freely forgiven, adopted into his family, made a co-heir with Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel this morning. It's not about a good, it's not about good advice. It's not about living a perfect life. It's not about trying to turn over a new leaf or improve things. It's about turning to the only savior that God has provided for us to save us from our sins, to deliver us from our little kingdoms and place us in his. So that one day when he comes back, 
that we will join him in the celebration of that coming kingdom and be partakers of it together. So that's the good news. That's, where the, that's ultimately what's at the bottom of these two reactions is where the, where the object of the trust of these two men is. Nebuchadnezzar, his trust is in himself and is in his own kingdom. Daniel, his trust is in God and in God's kingdom. And that's what produces these two different, very, two very different lifestyles and two very different responses to trials and difficulties. So what's our reaction to this? Well, let's get to that. Let's come to the interpretation of the dream. We're going to skip down a little ways because Joe read for us the first part of the interpretation. We see that there's this image and it has a gold head and it has a silver and a silver arms and chest on it and then it's, it's thighs and the middle part is all bronze here and then as you continue to go down this large statue, its legs become iron and then its feet are kind of clay and iron together. So you've got all these alloys and metals and parts of materials making up this one big statue. But what's interesting is the statue gets broken by a large stone and it is struck and all of it falls apart. It's broken into pieces, verse 35, and the wind carries it away and not a trace of it to be found. So you've got this large statue being crushed by this stone. That's essentially the content of the dream. And so, verse 36 is where we pick up. This was the dream. So Daniel's gone into Nebuchadnezzar. He's told him the content. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar blown away. Blown away. The guy just told me what I dreamed in detail. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Ooh, I love that. Don't you love that? Let me read that again. This is really revelatory of where Daniel is. Verse 37. You, O king. So respectful, calls him the king. King of kings. Greatest king in the earth. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. There's a king greater than you, Nebuchadnezzar. Because like we said last week, God is in control of who is in control. Then he says... To whom God has given, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You're the head of, you're, you are the head of gold. So he tells him, Babylon is the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon is the head of gold. That's you. Then he goes on. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. What kingdom was that? Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persian kingdom conquered Babylon. World history. And yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth, following them, Greece. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Rome. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. Rome was. Split in half. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. 
As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another. In what days did God set up his kingdom? In the days of Rome, when the Lord Jesus was born under Roman rule. Now, I don't want to go into all the details here of the you know, mixing of the clay and intermarriage, all that stuff. Don't, it, th- th- there's a bigger point here, okay? You can disagree with me on the details, but the bigger point is crystal clear, right? Wherever we might fall out on the details of this, it's crystal clear what the message is. God's kingdom is ruling over all other kingdoms and will be the final kingdom that comes after all other earthly kingdoms have perished. It was already hinted at in chapter 1. Remember verse 2, verse 9, and verse 17 that I took you to last week where it said, the Lord gave, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. The Lord is at work in this story. Guess what? Nebuchadnezzar is king because God made him king. Daniel's in Babylon because God put him there. Daniel got promoted because God gave him the promotion. Daniel gained favor because God gave it to him. Daniel got the content of the dream because God gave it to him. Daniel gave the interpretation because God gave it to him. Daniel is received by Nebuchadnezzar favorably because God gave that, put that in Nebuchadnezzar's heart to make him do that. So the, the big crystal clear message of chapter 1 and 2 is that even in the midst of the rise and fall of world empires and the reigns of good and bad rulers, and in good times and bad times, the kingdom of God will be established. And church, in these days, does that not encourage your heart? God is in control of who is in control worldwide, and his kingdom will be established. And no one will be able to thwart it. It will grow, it will ultimately triumph throughout the whole earth in the lives of ordinary men and women. And it's going to come almost imperceptibly. And then one day it's going to come in glory. So what do we learn? What should be our reaction, brothers and sisters, to this? I want three things for us. I want three things for you this morning. I want these three encouragements to hit your faith and to fuel you and encourage you in these days of where conviction and courage are so required Number one, God's word is true. God's word is true. Is this just some mythological document? I mean, we're talking about dreams this morning. Isn't this fairy tale stuff? It's fa- I mean, it sounds so fairy tale-ish, doesn't it? Oh, a guy had a bad dream, comes, wants an interpretation. No, but notice the, the, the history that's embedded here. The history is four kingdoms being established, one after another, all coming down and then God establishing his kingdom in the, in the days of the fourth. That's what happened. That's world history. That's recorded. That's not just made up, hope so, wish so, faith, pie in the sky, Christianity, belief stuff. That's history. See, Christianity is a historical thing. You have to reckon with history. Not just what a pastor says or a church says or a book says. What history says. What actually happened. See, all that had to happen was was for this interpretation to be proved false is just to not be played out in history. But it played out in history. That's the way history went down. So God's word is true. We live on the other side of these events several thousand years later. And we can look back and we say, yep, it happened. So God's word is true. 
It's true. Just be encouraged by that. You don't have to risk anything when you put your life on the line for believing this book. So God's word is true. Number two, God's in control. He's in control. We don't live in a universe that's out of control. We live in a universe where everything that is happening is moving forward precisely according to the predetermined and definite plan of God. Daniel makes it crystal clear. The Bible plays it out crystal clear. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Verse 44, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms. It shall bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. We should worship the way Daniel worshiped. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. He reveals deep and hidden things. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Number one, God's word is true. Number two, God is in control. Number three, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Christ's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The day is coming, brothers and sisters, when he will one day put away every other earthly authority. The only rule that will be seen in this universe will be the rule of Jesus Christ. The whole universe will acknowledge his lordship. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. He humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He died the death of a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue, every tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You bow your knees now or you bow your knees later, but bow your knees, you will. But here's the good news. When we are made by his grace, his willing, joyful subjects now because he's the greatest king we could ever possibly live under, way better than self-rule. I want theonomy, not autonomy. (laughs) I want the reign of God over the reign of self. I don't know about you, but when I try to rule my life, things just don't work. They work for a little while, (laughs) and then they don't work. But... When I, when I live my life under God, yes, it's hard. Yes, things come into my life that are inexplicable and difficult. The Bible told me all that too. It's costly to follow this king. You might lose your life for it. But nevertheless, we will one day hear, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and enter and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I don't know about you, but I want to hear those lips. I want to hear those words from the lips of Jesus coming to me. You know why you're coming in? Not because you're good. Because you were blessed by my Father. My Father set his love upon you eternally. My Father redeemed you through my work. My Father indwelled, sent my Holy Spirit to indwell you. My Father kept you all the way for this moment. Come. This kingdom was prepared for you. Enjoy it forever and ever and ever. That's why Luke 12, Jesus spoke to us and said, Fear not, little flock, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Christianity will always be in the minority in this age. It will always be like a little mustard seed that grows and eventually fills the whole world. But it's going to be a remnant 
a minority, a worldwide minority, mind you, in every place. There will be people who are following Jesus and worshiping Jesus. But we'll be a little flock, and we'll be an afraid little flock. But Jesus comes to us and says, don't be afraid. And don't 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 be fearful just because you're small. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So how do we enter that kingdom? Jesus told us right when he came on the scene, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's how we come into the kingdom. We turn away from our sin and we entrust ourselves to the king by faith, pledging to be his followers all the days of our life. So no doubt, the Lord's people will always be a remnant in this life, a small minority in proportion to the overall population. But the teaching of this chapter is that the remnant will never be snuffed out and will always be growing until it extends to cover the whole earth. So there is no need, brothers and sisters, for us to fear the future of Christ's cause. His kingdom cannot fail. And very soon, it will be the only kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think about your kingship and to see it reflected in this ancient text in the book of Daniel chapter 2. And we thank you for what it reveals and what we know has happened in history that your king has come, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will come again in glory and in power, not like his first coming in quietness in a stable in Bethlehem, hanging on a cross, but he will come on a white horse with a crown and a sword. And he will rescue his people and deal justice to all those who are outside of his kingdom and establish his kingdom once and for all. And we pray, like we pray nearly every Sunday, even so, we pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we ask it. Amen.